even just having the chance to make a choice between countries that you would like to travel to puts you in a privileged position compared to many across the world. So I think for me, just having the chance to travel anywhere at all should be considered a privilege. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Okay, I didn't drop an episode last week, as you probably noticed. This was partly because I didn't have all the submissions ready until the weekend, and by the time I did, I just didn't feel it was appropriate to knock off an episode quickly. I tried to think what else I could talk about instead, but in the end I decided to just do a proper episode this week and leave last week. I did do a spot of recording, though, which I dropped into my Patreon, subscription start at £1.99 a month, about VE Day which may seem like a weird thing to drop onto a TravelPod's Patreon account, but bear with me on this. See, I've been wondering for a bit about this whole theme of late. Some of you may know I have a hand in a left-leaning political podcast called Ungagged. By a hand in, what I actually mean is I occasionally contribute, but more importantly the website is hosted in my web space for uh, complicated reasons. Anyway, I was musing about whether I should go down that route of politics a bit more now, especially as I have things to say, people's voices to amplify, and no one's going to be doing any travelling, so a third of my current podcast theme, which is the different ways you can travel bit, is kind of redundant. Obviously, I can still do destination pods, as that serves as both local interest and as the same principles as travel documentaries serve to people who'd never go to those places anyway. I talked a bit about that in my Travel Hopes pod a couple of weeks ago, but it also relates in part to this one. In addition, because I didn't have anything else to hand for a pod, and because I'd felt I'd neglected the Patreon a bit this week, it seemed the most obvious and easiest thing to do. I was going to talk a bit about Asexual Visibility Day, which at the time would have felt like quite a strong mood whiplash, although on Asexual Twitter in the days afterwards there was a bit of an argument about it. But then I've already spoken about asexuality in a previous pod, which will surely be mentioned again later for different reasons. As an aside, regarding asexuality, I'd previously mentioned to Asexual Twitter that most of the leading activists in the asexual community were British, a fact that became relevant with regards to Asexual Visibility Day, as it's the same day as VE Day. And a friend online asked me yesterday, so who are the most visible asexuals in the USA then? At the time of my research, Wikipedia lists precisely eight asexual men and eight asexual women who are notable enough to be listed on their site. This is worldwide, note. And the latter includes Caitlyn Jenner, whose connections to asexuality seem to be quite dubious even by her own admission. There are 11 fictional asexuals, and yesterday I learnt that, canonically, SpongeBob SquarePants is asexual. I don't quite know what to do with this information, nor how much that's going to change my life knowing that one of the leading asexual role models is a yellow sponge who lives underwater. But hey. I've also been reminded of my political bent with my recent blog posts. I'm now only about four years late with them, and I'm on to talking a bit about my adventures in southern Africa, which took place in January 2016. And while the posts started off as quite fresh and benign, with tales of seeing elephants and not bungee jumping, 
I ended up getting a bit deeper than I intended to into more profound topics. Firstly, colonialism, and then apartheid. And I was thinking as I was writing them, I kind of enjoy this slightly more than I do writing general overview posts of countries. One possible branching I could do, of course, is to create my own separate political-themed podcast where I talk about things like VE Day directly. There's a few travel-related political-tinged posts, or pods, that I've got on my list of things that I should be doing, including one on business class air travel, which may be a bit outdated by now, but we'll see, palm oil and possibly plastic pollution, although I can't help but feel I've already podded about that, possibly from gagged. But obviously that requires far more work on my part, and you know how I feel about that. Work well. I'm currently looking for a job. I've applied for quite a few positions across the country, and I've had one, you're through to the next stage, mail already, as well as maybe three rejections, but that's fine. I'm seeking roles back in my old stomping ground of data analysis, because, well, I can, I guess. In my search, I did discover a couple of job titles that sounded more intriguing than they really are, including the Senior Leakage Analyst, which involves water supply rather than anything else you might imagine. It does, though, take my mind back to when I was casually looking around for jobs about 20 years ago, when it looked like the firm I was working for at the time was going to close. It didn't in the end, but still. One of them was as a telephony analyst for, um, shall we say, a company with a lot of phone lines and people working from home, mainly women. I guess listening to call recordings may have been a lot more interesting than that firm than in most. Another role that I saw that I was prevented from applying for because of my height was for MI6 as a spy. I think they may have worded it as surveillance officer, but I do remember two of the aspects of the job were you must be of average height, build, style, with no redeeming or memorable features, so you can blend into the crowd without people noticing you. Alongside possibly the most honest thing I've ever seen in a job advert. This job will require staying in one location for several hours at a time, watching and waiting while nothing is going on. It therefore doesn't suit people who need excitement and variety in their working day. Remember, folks, nothing is how it is in the movies or TV. If you made a true life show about the working lives of police officers and reflected it as accurately as possible, it would be very, very boring to watch. My abilities to blend in with the crowd would be taking even more of a battering than usual there at the moment. I don't know how many of you will have noticed this either independently or as a result of a couple of posts of mine on Twitter, Facebook, etc. that either me or my online friends have made, but I was in the newspaper on Sunday. Admittedly only the online edition, I assume it was only the online edition anyway, as the Metro paper does not, as far as I'm aware, produce a weekend paper edition. But there was a long article published about me, and specifically how I tend to travel the world barefoot. A journalist contacted me via Instagram and asked me a few questions. I knocked up a few answers based around both my first podcast episode, which was an introduction to me, and all about my travelling barefoot and the follow-up blog post I did about a year or so later, which they then edited and published as part of a week-long series of features about feet. Features, one might say, which is a pun that only works in print. Their rationale was that initially, as it was coming up to summer, people were going to be showing off their feet more, and they wanted to showcase some interesting articles about them. But then, when the virus came, they decided to roll with it anyway, because it gave them something light-hearted to talk about, rather than concentrating on death, lockdown and boredom. So there we go, 15 hours of fame. That said, it's not quite over. BBC Radio Northampton picked up on the article, and by the time you listen to this podcast, I should have appeared on the evening show for about five minutes. It makes a change from BBC Radio Sheffield, though, I guess. Of course, that I'm able to travel barefoot around the world is because I'm able to make the choice to, on so many different levels of privilege. And that's where I wanted to go on this week's pod, the subject of privilege in travel. 
It's one of those topics I feel some people are reluctant to delve into to think about. As if there's one thing that people don't like, it's having their comfortable lives challenged with the observations that they may have had an innate advantage in getting there. With regards specifically to my barefoot travel, let's see. There's the privilege that I can travel, for a kick-off. The privilege that no one really mithers me for my general lack of footwear, assuming that it's a choice rather than a necessity. And there's the privilege that they're right on both counts. I have the privilege of being able to choose how, when and where I travel, to a large extent, and that my origins and general demeanour mean I can get away with these choices. As I've pointed out, possibly even in that first podcast, I'm personally not exactly short of privilege, being tall, white, British, male, middle class and middle aged. I went to a school with people who had the choice to learn Latin, Greek and ancient history at A-level and go on to do classics at Oxbridge, the sort of people who think that it's great even now to sit in a dinner party and regale the guests with prose directly out of Ovid or Cicero. I don't know these people anymore, and I don't get invited to dinner parties. I mean, could you imagine me in a formal setting where you have to be polite and smart? Note that Latin GCSE may well be my highest language qualification, but it was in 1991, and all the Latin I can remember now comes from Asterix books. I'd like to say that there's nothing inherently wrong with privilege in and of itself, but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Thing is, in pretty much any society there will be people deemed to have more of an advantage than others. Everyone is equal, as the saying goes, but some are more equal than others. The main problem, as I say it with privilege, is more that, more often than not, the people with it barely recognise it as such. They treat the way they live as being normal, and barely even imagine that things could be different for different people. That not everyone has the ability to work from home, for instance, or avoid using public transport. So will often say or do things that, while everyone in their social circle can relate to, many other people feel left out by it. Yes, that was a huge subtweet. In terms of travel, the biggest one is probably the ability to travel in the first place, as I mentioned earlier. So many people, when they talk about travel, assume that it's something everyone can do, that it's easy to just pop on a train or a plane and head out somewhere new, even if you're on a budget. There's two levels of pushback to this. At the first level is the belief that everyone should have a passport, but I'll come on to this later. At a deeper level is the fact that not everyone can travel. At all. Period. What do you mean you've never been to London? It's only a train ride away. Is all very well, but what if you're living day to day and simply can't afford to take a train? What if the only way you can survive is to work long hours because you have dependents you need to care for, who also need to come with you? What if you have a long-term disability that means you can't get out of the house at all? I touched on some of this in episode 21 about travel hopes, where I said that it's important that we keep talking about travel in a general sense, because for some people, the inability to travel isn't just a virus-related situation, but rather their permanent situation. It's quite privileged to think that everyone can travel, and I think we as travel writers need to be mindful of that. Passport privilege is the other level, and this takes on two forms. The ability many of us have to get a passport in the first place, and then the privilege of having the right passport. On the first point, it's a held belief amongst many of my generation and class-based peers that everyone has a passport, and those that don't are in some way ignorant or backward thinking. Here let me introduce my friend Victoria, who has something to say about that. When I was first asked to record a pod on passport privilege, my immediate response was, but what can I say about passports? I haven't got one. Barefoot was very patient when he pointed out that that was the point. (laughs) Um, As a white, cis, straight-passing woman with no disabilities, I'm used to talking about privilege from the other side. It's challenging for me to discuss a privilege I don't have without sounding whiny and lecturing. But the more I pondered, the more I realised that perhaps I do have something to say on the subject after all. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be an explorer. I was gutted when I realised that the world had been pretty much thoroughly explored already, and there wasn't much left to discover. 
No matter though, there was maybe nothing new left to see in the world, but there was a whole world that hadn't been seen by me. I was going to see the northern lights from the Arctic Circle, swim in waterfall pools in Vietnam, cross living route bridges in India. I was going to climb mountains and immerse myself in languages and paddle in every sea. A passport was going to be the first thing I bought as an adult. There'd be no stopping me. I moved out of the foster care system when I was about 17, into a tiny flat with my two-year-old. I couldn't afford a passport, I could barely afford food. Never mind, I told myself, I can buy one when I finish my A-levels, and one for my son as well. We can travel together, that would be great for him. Except that when I finished my A-levels, every penny I had was going towards paying off a build-up of rent arrears that had happened when my housing benefit had been erroneously cut. Never mind, I'd get one the next year. I scrimped and saved all year long. I'd just about had enough for a passport each. And then the cooker broke down. Toddlers require constant feeding. A cooker is non-negotiable. Fast forward to now. I'm 35. I haven't left the country in my entire adult life. I have four children, so just buying passports for us all is way beyond my reach. It probably always will be. It hurts when I think about it. I get a little spike of grief for things that I'll never get to see. For the life that I thought I was going to have. The life that I could have had if I weren't on a constant treadmill of just about surviving. In the scheme of things, it isn't really important. There's blogs and videos of places. You can buy food from all sorts of cultures right here in the UK. You can explore the world through books and TV shows. They say you can't miss what you've never had. Well, that's not true at all. But you can try not to think about it. There's no denying that travel changes people. It instills empathy, introduces new perspectives on all sorts of things. In our society, to be worldly and well-travelled is to be wise and cultured. That means that to some people, perhaps those people for whom a passport is an essential item and wasn't a struggle to obtain, the opposite seems to be true too. To not own a passport means that you don't care to see the world. You're insular and isolationist and believe travel is pointless because your home country is the best. That may well be true for some people, but I'd guess the majority of people who don't hold a passport do wish that they did. We're already ashamed and sad that we'll likely never leave the land that we were born on, so please don't further shame us with, I bet you've never even left your hometown. So what's the solution to travel inequality? Well, personally, I'd like everyone to realise that borders aren't actually real, that they're imaginary lines in the dirt and it's absurd bordering on obscene that we charge people to cross them. But that's unlikely to happen, at least in my lifetime. Maybe, if we insist on passports to allow access to certain parts of the planet that we all have an equal stake in, we should at least make them free to everyone. I, of course, talked about my own take on borders in Podcast 12. I'm not saying necessarily to abolish all borders completely, but certainly having much larger regions of freedom of movement would be only beneficial for all the states and countries involved. This then leads on to the privilege of having the right passport, and there's quite a few of my contributors who have made this point. First up we have Christina from Living Wonderfield. To answer the question of whether I have passport privilege, yes, I definitely have passport privilege. I have a U.S. passport, which is a strong passport, meaning I don't have to apply for visas very often. I've been to Central and South America and Europe. I've never even had to think about passport or visa issues, whereas I have friends and family from South America and other countries who've been denied visas for what seem like arbitrary reasons. So the fact that I've never even had to think about applying for a visa or any of that, where some people have to plan out things and apply and, you know, risk actual rejection, I definitely have passport privilege. Another person who mentions it is Matthew from Two Tickets 2, who talks a bit about having a British passport. 
passport privilege and the world you were born into plays a huge role. Um, so as a British citizen, I'm incredibly privileged and fortunate that I hold you know, what might be considered to be a powerful passport, um, you know, recognised, acknowledged, and yes, even after Brexit, probably respected across much of the world. And it's very easy to take for granted things like visa-free travel or you know, even just the freedom to travel almost anywhere you want. A glance through my Twitter followers does reveal something definitely revealing. The majority of people I chat to are American, European or Australian. People who hold pretty useful passports, who don't have too much hassle getting into most countries, and where the biggest gripes around border controls tend to revolve around visa fees. Oh, this country is hideously expensive to get into. The visa costs £50. I mean, seriously. Firstly, we have economic privilege. That means that while £50 feels like a lot of money, if we're the sort of person that can afford to fly halfway around the world to take holiday snaps for Instagram, we're also the sort of person that can afford visa fees. That doesn't mean, by the way, I endorse the concept. I've been to enough countries to get a feel where that visa fee goes, and it's not always to the development of the country. Otherwise, somewhere like the Democratic Republic of Congo would be one of the lushest and richest countries in the world. Just that we're showing our privilege by complaining about it and then paying it anyway, or by choosing to visit somewhere else instead, because having a choice is itself a big privilege. Secondly, of course, as others have stated, there's a huge number of countries that Western travellers can visit without admin. It's not just the visa fee either, it's often the rest of the admin. I've balked in the past at the criteria of getting a visa for Nigeria as a British citizen, which at the time included having to pay not only about US$144 for a single-entry visa, but also providing evidence of a return ticket, proof of accommodation, including a letter from the accommodation confirming my stay and not just a booking receipt, a letter from my employer confirming I had a job and was planning to come back to it, and evidence of bank details proving I had the funds to stay in the country. Not necessarily all signed in blood, but it kind of felt like it. But this is quite normal for non-Western citizens. My Twitter friend Pinksonjoy, who holds an Indian passport, tweeted this. Whenever I fill up visa forms and submit bank statements, tax returns, salary slips, air and hotel bookings with day-to-day itinerary, reminds me of the unfairness, but makes me more determined. Those who write blogs about spontaneous travel have no clue what many go through. She also highlights there one of the privileges of having a preferential passport, and something I take full advantage of in my travels, I have to say. The ability to travel without a plan. Very short-term decisions, waking up in the mornings not knowing which country I'll be in that night. If you hold a less powerful passport, that becomes impossible, partly because of the need to obtain visas, but also because some visas will only be issued if you provide full details of your entire itinerary, where you'll be going, where you'll be staying, etc. This concept is completely alien to me, but it's the reality for the majority of the world's population. Now, I mentioned Nigeria a couple of moments ago as being a country with an unusually difficult visa process for Westerners, as well as the DRC, which has similar requirements and whose visa fee seems to be around $175 for a single entry, though it's hard to confirm this as they seem to make it difficult to even apply for a visa from the UK. You'd have thought countries would be most welcoming to allegedly rich foreigners. And I mean, who wouldn't want to visit Democratic Republic of Congo with its lush jungles, large rivers, beautiful mountains, wildlife, both magnificent and mythological and interesting culture? It's certainly on my list of places to visit in the next few years. For someone like me, holding a British passport, I've certainly found Africa in general to be the continent I've had most visa and admin issues with. I've needed a visa for almost every country I've visited, and not all of them could be obtained on arrival. Or where they could be, the time allowed in the country was limited. And they've pretty much all been quite expensive relative to most of the rest of the world. But I guess that's what you get when you shaft their entire economy, culture and resource for 150 years. 
But there is another aspect of passport privilege that gets around some of these issues, that of dual nationality. Here's Teo, the five to nine traveller, who talks first about privilege in general that she holds, but then goes on to discuss the privilege of holding dual British and Nigerian identity. My travel privilege is so multi-layered, so I have a British passport automatically that sets me apart from being able to walk into waltz into countries without a second thought i have no responsibility so that's another level of privilege you know i don't i'm not tied down by children by a husband or partner um by kids by bills and mortgages you know i have my day-to-day bills but that is not stopping me from traveling the world um another le- level of privilege I have a job, you know, that I think a lot of people don't realise that even being economically able to travel is a level of privilege that some people are struggling just to put food on the table. So I'm totally aware of the whole rhetoric of quit your job, travel the world. That is just not feasible and actually irks me no end. Um, Another level of privilege, I suppose, is, you know, even just thinking about the fact that I have two passports. So I have a British passport and a Nigerian passport. Now, I know my British passport is stronger, but my Nigerian passport allows me to enter into African countries without an issue. So in that sense, I may not get hassled as much in an African country, but in comparison to going to Eastern Europe is where I can get hassled. So I'm very aware of the nuances of different levels of travel privileges that I have. It's noticeable that some people here in Britain have picked up on this in the years since Brexit, and it's interesting how many of them have discovered they have an Irish grandparent. There's of course a whole other class of people Burley mentioned in these discussions. V mentioned earlier about not having a passport, but obviously as a British citizen she still has certain privileges and at least has the legal possibility of getting one, even if it's economically beyond her means. What if even the right to a passport is beyond you? Um, you Even before coronavirus, the freedom and opportunity was certainly not universal for everybody, from refugees who might find themselves stateless, so without a passport, um, to countries that might be subject to travel bans, etc, etc. It's really just a quirk of fate that we've been born into countries where freedom to travel is an expectation, and I suspect that we won't be taking it for granted again for a while. One day I'll do a pod on immigration. Actually, that's a lie. One day I'll introduce a pod on immigration, and get my friend Laura to then talk about it for half an hour, if I can restrict her to half an hour. It might be near a half a day. Anyway, back in podcast seven, I talked a lot about sexuality and travel, and about how some people have much more of a privilege than others in terms of passing in local culture. I had contributions from a bisexual woman, an asexual lesbian, and a trans man talking about the issues that they've encountered when visiting other countries, and indeed when travelling itself. I appear to be able to pass for both gay and straight, which is quite useful, I think. But as a little tip, I always try to keep the first picture in my camera or on my phone as a picture of a female friend, so I can easily bring up the impression that I'm happily coupled. The friend in question is quite amused at this. Anyway, here's Matthew again talking about local customs and how easy it is to fit in and how this is easier for some people than for others. Privilege plays a huge role when you arrive into a country. So whether it's gender, race, sexuality or more, this can all affect your experience of a country and how you're perceived within it. The general rule of thumb is that you should always try to respect and abide by local customs and traditions. 
Uh, and this is normally pretty easy for me as a straight white male, but it probably isn't quite as easy if aspects of your identity would be considered illegal or subject you to reduced rights or respect in, in the country that you're travelling to. Having said that, even just having the chance to make a choice between countries that you would like to travel to puts you in a privileged position compared to many across the world. Uh, so I think for me, just having the chance to travel anywhere at all should be considered a privilege and hopefully we'll start to realise that a bit more now and in the coming months and years. And that's, of course, the big one. Most of my Twitter followers, most of the Instagram travel influencers, most of the travel bloggers are white. One of the biggest privileges in travel of all. Partly because of how people see us, we're often seen as the ones with money, the rich foreigners, the powerful ones, the ones with influence. And partly just because we white people kind of expect it to be the case. We don't imagine ever being hassled walking down the street because of our skin colour. We don't imagine being challenged on entry into a business. We don't imagine ever being worried about being attacked while jogging through a white neighbourhood. That combination of colour and nationality is the biggest privilege of all, and why most travel bloggers are white Europeans, Americans or Australians. Because it's much, much easier for them. So easy that they rarely have to think about it, and their assumption is that everybody following them is the same. Which, to be honest, might well be the truth in the way. People tend to gravitate around people who are similar to them, be it socially or in the work environment, or in terms of social media following. If you're listening to this, and you're a white Westerner, ask yourself, how many people of colour do you follow? interact with? How many Africans? How many Indians? Do you know if what you write is accessible to them, interesting to them, as much as it is to people like you? The continent of Africa is very diverse, and it may surprise many Westerners to know that African travel Twitter is a thing, just as much as European travel Twitter is. Kachi, from The Solo Wanderer, is a leading light in African travel, having travelled to 35 countries in Africa, mostly solo, and definitely someone worth checking out, though at the time of this podcast she's updating her website. She admits to having a level of privilege being from South Africa, tweeting thus. My current struggle right now is trying to put words that explain the convenience and privilege that comes with just being a South African that other Africans will never understand. I'll find those words. The privilege of being a South African, something majority of the continent will never understand. They will always hold us in such high regard and call us out without taking into consideration that privilege which most of us as Africans cannot begin to fathom. But she is using that privilege to inform, educate and entertain other Africans about travel in Africa. Affordable travel will be the end of me, will stress me to no end, but I'll work to my last day for this. This is my purpose. Travel heals, educates, travel will free you. To my last day I will work that all my people can experience this privilege most of us take for granted. She is also quite critical of white bloggers writing about Africa, and with fair reason. I've realised mediocrity in blogging rest with white people. They always claim to be the top bloggers in spaces. It makes zero sense. I'm yet to see a black blogger claiming to be the best in Africa or the UK. I figure mediocrity and white privilege could be mutually exclusive. It is true about white privilege in general. We don't have to be exceptionally good at something to be noted for it. Whereas certainly in the Western world, people of colour need to be seen as exceptional, to be in any way noteworthy. And even then they don't get the opportunities, the rewards that white people do. Or people see them as having got their breaks illicitly or are held up to an immensely greater standard than white people. So any little crack they have is hounded down. Sometimes it feels to get noted in the media, people of colour, Africans especially, have to have 20 years of experience and a master's degree before anyone gives them a note. Whilst white women stand in front of a famous monument, flutter their eyelids, take a selfie and become instant superstars. Christina is more optimistic about travel privilege though. 
do you feel many people in the travel world go through life not knowing they have privilege? Maybe at the beginning of your travels, you might not really fully understand the depth of your privilege. Also depends on where you are from, obviously, and how much privilege you have. But I think that you'd have to be completely dense and unaware of your surroundings while you travel and as you travel to ignore the fact that you have privilege. Once you meet other travelers and hear their stories and experiences, you've got to realize the levels of privilege you have as a traveler. That all being said, traveling around Africa as an African is different from traveling around Africa as a white European. Here's Teo again, talking about a couple of things she's experienced in West Africa. Another thing that's interesting about my travel privileges is my skin colour. Now, often being a black woman, you know, black woman can count against me. But actually, if I can go to some communities where I won't stand out as much. So I'm not I'm not saying being black and a woman can be a privilege at all times because it's we all know that's not the case. But sometimes I can blend in more um, that I certainly felt that in South America, even though there's not many black people, I didn't stand out compared to my Danish brother, who was like tall, lanky, blonde, blue eyed, and he'd often get like attention. But that's the same for me, you know, if I was to go to an Asian country. So it very much varies where you're going in the world, like what kind of privileges you can have. So I also have that privilege of being able to blend in in certain areas. And likewise, with people who are Caucasian, they will have that privilege to be able to blend in as well. Another aspect related to dual nationality is the privilege of knowing more than one language, specifically a locally used one. This could be as broad as knowing both English and Spanish in Latin America, or as specific as knowing French in Mandinka if travelling in the Gambia and parts of Senegal. Obviously, it makes travelling itself much easier. You're not as reliant on other people to help you around, but it also gives you a much greater insight into the people and the culture. It also helps to endear yourself to the local people, especially if you're obviously a foreigner. The respect you gain is more than worth the hassle of learning, and it means it's easier to pass. You don't stand out as much, and you gain that little bit more of local privilege. Here's Christina again, talking a bit about travelling and knowing local languages. It's funny, I used to think of being bilingual as this annoying burden. My parents forced us to speak Spanish, and even made us take advanced grammar classes during the summer growing up. Uh, but because of that, I ended up wanting to learn another language, um, and then I ended up studying French in high school and college. I'm not fluent by any means, but I pick it up fairly quickly, and I can read and write it fairly decently. And again, these are things that I thought, well, this is something that I enjoy, and just like something to have in my back pocket for job application purposes. I never realized how much this would be a privilege or how useful it would be until I took my first backpacking trip after college. I went with a friend who spoke German um, and understood a little bit of Dutch, and then I could do the French and the Spanish for us. And so it made traveling so much easier for the two of us because we could get around quickly, we could get help um, fairly easily, and all the little mundane things that you, you might have to Google or you might have to kind of be prepared with general phrases, we never had to worry about, which it's really simple, but it's it's amazing. It kind of streamlines your experience a little bit. And then, of course, it was also really nice um, when we would be in a restaurant or something, for example, and we would speak to each other in English, obviously, and we both had, you know, very clear American accents. It was always really funny and kind of annoying, but funny that 
we could hear what people were saying about us in their native language and one of us understood it and could relate it to the other. And so there were a couple occasions where um, in German, for example, she turned around and was, you know, kind of told one of the people off. And then it also happened in, in Spain when I had to turn around and say, you know, I understand what you're saying and it's really disrespectful, things like that. So we're not dumb American tourists and we, we were able to kind of defend ourselves in those ways. So I think obviously the more languages you know, the better. Um, and I definitely think I'm privileged that not only am I native in two languages, but uh, I do have a fairly strong hold on a third and several other languages come easier to me because of that. I'm really bad at languages. I can't get my brain to remember stuff like that, nor can I think quickly enough to access those memories in real time when I need them. My theory is that it's something I'd get used to when put in that environment, but that's why I always intended to go abroad to learn intensively. You'd have thought that given how many friends I know that can speak Spanish, that it would be a relatively simplistic thing for me to pick up remotely, logistically. But apparently not. Christina also brought up another aspect of privilege, which Rue from Rue Loves Travel brings up. It's the idea of being privileged that you can share your travels with someone, that you have someone you can travel with, which of course not everyone has. Other than being financially able to have travelled, I also feel very lucky to have had people to share experiences with. Although I've travelled solo a few times, sharing a passion for travel with loved ones and making precious memories is a privilege in itself. Growing up, my dad put his own love of travel mostly on pause in order to save money to share with us once he retired. And since his retirement, we've travelled together, him and I, at least once a year to almost every continent. And I've also travelled with friends and with my boyfriend of a decade. So although being financially privileged to travel is something I am so grateful for, the real treasure for me is the memories I've been fortunate enough to make along the way with those I care about. I tend to travel most places on my own. I even did a whole podcast about it, Podcast 9. But certainly having someone to travel with makes some adventures much easier and cheaper. It's much harder as a solo traveller to get more off-brochure places without, for instance, hiring your own taxi. One last aspect of privilege in travel, and again, one not often mentioned, is health. Most people who talk about travel do so from the point of view of being able-bodied and able-minded. People who are capable of hiking up a hill, meandering around a town, or even to a degree just getting on a bus. Here's Teo again, mentioning this very point. In addition, um, another level of privilege is just the fact that I am healthy. And, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's just more there's some certain activities I go on on my holiday. So I very much focus on adventure traveling, so hiking, kayaking, anything that's physical. But actually, that's quite a difficulty for some who have disabilities or just uh, are not physically able to um, for whatever reason. So that is another level of privilege. So I can access areas in the world that actually requires me to utilise my body to its fullest. Um, you know, I think back to my hike to Machu Picchu. I was just like, this is an insane hike. And if I was, you know, on crutches, this is just not possible. So I just have to be um, that is another level of privilege that I am able to do these kind of travels as well. Um, so that's something to think about also when I go about my business. If you look at many people who talk about travel, and this is especially true on Instagram, there's rarely a disability or health condition to be seen. I guess mainly because the audience for travel tends to be people who are themselves privileged in this way. So don't associate the idea of travel with people who need a little extra help to get around. They assume everyone can just get off their sofa and go. 
Unrelated subjects to that, I have in mind a couple of future podcast episodes, one on disability and travel, and one on plus-size travel, which, like sexuality and travel, brings up a whole host of small issues that most people don't even think of, never mind understand. I'll be putting a bit of a recording about this on Patreon about the latter later. That's nearly everything I wanted to talk about, so I'm going to offer final thoughts with a contribution from Alexi at TravelX, who provided me with a nice little summary of pretty much everything I've talked about, which, given that it takes just over a minute, suggests once again that what I really need most of all is someone to edit my written words. So I think that being from a Western country has definitely given me loads of privileges when it comes to travel, and I don't even just mean um, from a financial standpoint, I think having a powerful passport which um, allows me to travel almost everywhere in the world without sort of needing to go through the bureaucratic processes of obtaining visas and so on um, is a privilege in itself. Now, I think we have a responsibility to be very mindful of those privileges that we have when we travel and that. In a way, we're also ambassadors, not just for ourselves, but for the countries that we're coming from. So essentially representing our parts of the world when we travel and we need to be mindful of how our actions come across and how they could be perceived by locals that may not be as familiar with travellers from places that we come from. So thanks for listening. And I hope this episode has made you open your eyes and think a bit. Next time, I mean, let's be honest, I've no idea, but it's due to be a geographic based episode. So as I say, I've been posting a lot of my blog about Southern Africa recently. So maybe it'll be that or maybe I'll finally get around to doing those London centric pods. We'll see. Until then, check your privilege. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I will understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now. <laughs>